Amen. And he never fails to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that at just the right time, in your perfect timing, you never fail. You never fail to show up, Lord, in our hour of need. Thank you that you don't always prevent us from going through the fire. But you walk with us and you carry us always through it. We're so grateful that we're in your care, Lord. Grow us to be people of strong faith, strong conviction and confidence in you, Lord. Visit with us this morning and open our hearts now to be touched, to be challenged and changed by your word. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. The year was 1967. It was in May. Egyptian and Syrian forces amassed on Israel's borders. Egypt had closed the Straits of Tehran to Israeli shipping. And then Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser filled the airwaves with calls to drive the Jews into the sea. The mood in the 19-year-old country was bleak. Israel was facing five well-equipped Soviet-trained Arab armies. Their defeat was virtually a foregone conclusion. The, the dark humor on everyone's mind that spring was last one out. Don't forget to turn out the lights. With close to two and a half million Jews living in the tiny country, it had the largest concentration of Jews since pre-Holocaust Eastern Europe. But so pessimistic was the outlook that the nation's cemeteries and every national park was marked to become a gravesite for the many that would surely perish in the war. It took just six days. And it would forever be known as the Six-Day War. But the outcome shocked everyone. Today, everyone knows that instead of defeat, Israel achieved a stunning victory. On June 5th at 7.46 in the morning, Egyptian uh, Air Force was on the ground and Israeli planes destroyed the entire Air Force while it, its planes were resting on the ground. In six days, Israel tripled its territory, gaining the Sinai Peninsula, the Golan Heights, the West Bank, and most precious of all, the, the Old City and the Temple Mount. The crucial strategy of destroying the Egyptian Air Force, while it was still on the ground, opened the way for the victory. And the success of the maneuver was generally attributed to Israeli planes flying below the radar detection of Egypt. But many factors contributed to the victory and the success. And in fact, the coincidences and, and the unlikely happenings at precisely the right time were so many that when you read about what took place, you're unable to pass them off as coincidence. It's not just luck. It wasn't good fortune. Take a look. L look at some of these coincidences. A few days before the war, the commander of Egyptian forces in the Sinai was ordered to change commanders in most of his brigades, putting in charge officers who didn't know the terrain, or their forces. On the very morning of June 5th, three hours before the Israeli airstrike, Egyptian intelligence did in fact issue a warning that an Israeli air attack would begin within minutes. 
At that point, Egypt still had time to get their planes off the ground and to safety. The message reached the command bunker in Cairo. An aide signed a copy, but no one bothered to look for the commander in chief to deliver it to him. On the same morning of the attack, Egyptian officers stationed at the radar station in northern Jordan picked up the scrambling Israeli aircraft and sent a red alert message straight to Cairo. The sergeant in the decoding room of the Supreme Command got the message and tried to decipher the message using the previous day's code and failed. And where was Egypt's commander in chief? The night before he and most of his top officers attended a party at an Air Force base in the northern Delta, at which a a renowned belly dancer was performing. Early the next morning, he took off for the Sinai, where he had ordered all his top commanders to assemble in order to meet a high-level Iraqi delegation. When the Israeli strike happened, not one senior officer in the entire Egyptian Air Force was at his post. History books speak of the Hundred-Year War, the Thirty-Year War, And many other long-fought battles, but here in just six short days, a nation managed to utterly rout not one, but five powerful enemies. Jews across the globe thanked God for the great miracles that happened. An incredible sense of pride and spiritual awakening gripped the Jewish people worldwide. And we know that these were no coincidences. They were part of the making of a modern day miracle. I love God's miracles. I love when God defies extraordinary odds and leaves us speechless. He's in the business of the spectacular, isn't he? Someone once said, when God wants to do something wonderful, he begins with a difficulty. When he wants to do something spectacular, he begins with an impossibility. As amazing as that six-day war in 1967 was, it wasn't Israel's greatest come-from-behind victory. That one took place 3,400 years before in a city named Jericho. Turn with me to our text this morning. Joshua chapter 6. You remember we talked last time about fear. And Israel's first experience with occupying the promised land They chose fear over faith and they lost the amazing blessing God had waiting for them. For 40 years, they wandered the desert aimlessly, homelessly, until every one of them in that faithless, rebellious group passed away there in the desert, all except for faithful Joshua and Caleb, who did place their faith in God and his providence. And here we are. Now we find that generation's children, the next generation grown up 40 years later, led by Joshua, once again at the doorstep to Canaan, looking to occupy their promised land. And, and to look at the conquest of Canaan a little bit, the conquest would be based on geographic factors. It was a large area. And from their camp at Gilgal near the Jordan River, the Israelites could see steep hills to the west. And Jericho controlled the way of ascent into these mountains. And Ai, another fortress, stood at the head of the ascent. If the Israelites were to capture the hill country, they must certainly take Jericho and Ai. That was the key to the entire war. It was a common strategy. Take an area, split it in the middle, 
conquer the middle section and then separately conquer the north and south. So that's what would happen. Israel could then engage the armies of the south and then battle the more remote armies of the north. But first, first, Jericho must fall. That was the key. And if we look at Jericho before we start reading, Jericho, the key to Israel's capture of Canaan, was an unconquerable walled city. Excavations there reveal that its fortifications featured a stone wall, listen to this, 23 feet high, 14 feet wide. That's a wall. At its top was a, a smooth stone slope angling upwards of 35, at 35 degrees for 35 feet, where it joined another massive stone wall that towered even higher, upwards of 46 feet. It was virtually impregnable. In ancient warfare, such cities were either taken by assault or surrounded and the people starved into submission. Its invaders might try to weaken the stone walls or, or uh, use fire or tunnel under. Or they might simply heap up a mountain of earth in order to try and go over. But those kinds of attacks needed weeks and months and usually suffered heavy losses. And this wall was no ordinary wall. Israel didn't have this luxury, but our ways are not God's ways. So let's start reading Joshua chapter six, verse one. Now, the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went in. No one came out. Jericho was prepared here. There was no surprise attack that was going to take place. Then the Lord said to Joshua, see, I've delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. And when you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up Everyone straight in. Clearly, this was no man-made battle strategy. To our human minds, the plan sounds ridiculous. But God has a miracle in mind. He's going to show up at just the right time and drop victory into the hands of the Israelites. A miracle. That's what was going to take place on the seventh day after the seventh lap. A bona fide, true blue, eyewitnessed, jaw-dropping miracle. They wouldn't have to battle or fight or figure out how to get past those walls. God was going to make that wall a non-factor and deliver the enemy straight into their hands. But they had to do three very important things if this miracle was ever going to take place. We're going to look at those today. First, they replaced their doubt with faith. If you were to have asked every military strategist that ever lived in all of history to come up with a battle strategy for Jericho, I guarantee you not one would have come up with this plan. God simply told Joshua to have the people march silently around Jericho for six days and after seven laps on the seventh day, blow the trumpets and shout. Can you imagine the look on Joshua's face as God's delivering the battle plans? He's expecting to hear strategies of, of ramps and 
tunnels and surprise attacks, cutting off supplies to the city. And he gets a strategy of silent marches, trumpets and shouts. And can you imagine the look on the faces of, of the Israelites as he delivered the strategy to them? Tell us, Joshua, tell us, tell us, what did God say? What do we do? What do we do? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, and the walls will, will what? They'll collapse. Right, from, from shouting at them. <laughs> Joshua, are you, um, are you feeling well? Joshua, did you, did you hear God right? Were you paying attention? You remember the game Telephone. Joshua, perhaps something got lost in translation. God's war strategy to human intellect seemed ridiculous. Did they completely understand it? No. Did they have doubts about the strategy? Anyone would have. But did they overcome their doubt with faith? Yes, and that's the key. Despite any doubts they may have had, despite not understanding the hows and the whys, they believed. They trusted They didn't question. They had faith. Faith. Hebrews 11.1 defines it. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Hebrews 10.23 Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for He who promised is faithful. And what was said about this battle In Hebrews 11, take a look. Hebrews 11, verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. By faith. Make no mistake about it. Faith won the victory that day. It wasn't the noise. It wasn't the trumpets. It wasn't the shouting. It wasn't even the strategy God had given them. It was the fact they obeyed. They believed. They had faith. In fact, notice when we read that passage, God had given the city of Jericho to them before they even began the march on that first day. Notice what God said in verse 2. See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. It's done. Joshua, it's a done deal. Before he even gives Joshua the strategy of what to do, it was done deal. God was just waiting to see their faith. Will they believe me? Will they trust me? Friends, sometimes God asks you to do something that you don't understand. You don't see how it could be relevant to what you're going through. You want to go, he says, wait. You want to wait, he says, go. And you can't see how it could possibly help. And you may doubt it entirely and and, and think it may make matters worse. The reality is that our thoughts our feelings, our emotions, they don't matter. We've got to set those aside, but our faith is critical. God wants to see our faith. He wants us to trust and believe Him despite our doubts, despite our feelings, despite our emotions, despite what we think is better. He's the God of the universe. He holds us and our situation in His capable hands. He desires only our good, And what's best for us? He sees the future that we can't even imagine. Is there any reason not to trust Him implicitly? So many times we think we know what's better. Our flesh gets the best of us and 
Instead of believing and trusting, we set out to remedy the situation ourselves. Look, Lord, nothing is happening while I wait. I'm going to step out and make something happen. Friend, if God is asking you to wait, your moving ahead will end in defeat and heartbreak. And if he's asking you to move, your staying still will end in defeat and heartbreak. Believe him. He knows what's best for you, not what's comfortable, not what makes sense in your eyes, not what's easy, not what's satisfying right now. He knows what's best for you in the scope of your life. I've heard it said so many times, I'm ready for a miracle in my life. I'm ready for God's blessings. Translation, I'm ready to make for God to make my dreams come true. What he really wants to hear and see from us is I'm ready for God's will in my life, whatever it is. And I'll obey him blindly despite my feelings, my doubts and my dreams. Friend, he knows better. In their best case scenario, do you think Israel could have ever have imagined what was going to happen? In their best case scenario, they were thinking, maybe we're going to wait it out over the coming months, not let anyone in or out, or maybe we'll, we'll find a way to get over the wall, we'll have, a, we'll have a battle and try and minimize our casualties somehow. It's going to take a long time, we're going to lose lives, but hopefully we will win. That was their best case scenario. Would they ever have dreamed what God delivered? No. So often we dream small because we only think of what's possible in our own minds. God has bigger plans. God has better plans. God has plans we can't even think of, dream, or imagine. Stop chasing your small dreams. Trust Him. Believe Him. Replace your doubt with faith like they did. And prepare yourself for the blessings and the miracles that he has planned in your life. So that was step one. They replaced their doubt with faith. Let's do the same today. Second, step two. They obeyed God's direction to the letter. Let's keep reading. In Joshua, now uh, verse six. So Joshua, son of Nun. I'm sorry, at chapter 6, verse 6. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the Ark of the Lord's Covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the Ark. At this time, the trumpets were sounding, but Joshua had commanded the army, do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout, then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once. Then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord, blowing trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them. The rear guard followed the ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. 
So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Now, shout, for the Lord has given you this city. Their faith wasn't just words. Their faith translated into obedient action. That's what faith does. When we believe and trust God, we obey Him. Our actions reflect our faith. We obey His word. March around the city once with all the armed men, he told Joshua. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. Got it. Got it, Lord. We march around the city for six days shouting. No, 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 no. No, march around the city once a day for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets, but don't shout yet. Got it. Got it. We march around once a day for six days. No shouting. We all carry trumpets. No, no, no. Only seven priests carry the trumpets. God's plan was detailed. He gave very specific instructions. He wants us to pay attention to the details. Joshua and the entire nation obeyed God's directions to a T. They paid attention to them. They reviewed them in their minds. They rehearsed them in their minds. They prayed over them. They planned out their moves of what they would do to follow God and obey Him exactly. What a great example. How often we get sloppy in our obedience. We practice part-time obedience. Partial obedience. Half-day obedience. You know what partial obedience is? Disobedience. God wants us to obey exactly and thoroughly. How often... Do we get sloppy with the details of God's commands in our lives? We either don't pay attention well enough or we don't want to obey God exactly because it's not convenient. It costs too much of ourselves. Too big a sacrifice. We cut corners. We make the required sacrifice a little easier, a little more convenient. Lord, can you imagine Joshua's response? Lord, I feel seven times on the seventh day is a bit excessive. We're going to march around once, which is still in the spirit of your command. (laughs) We take shortcuts. We try to frame disobedience as close enough. Approximate obedience to God's intent. To the spirit of his command. The spirit of his desire. Friend, it doesn't work. There's no fooling God. There are no shortcuts. It started with Cain and we've been doing it ever since trying to substitute something else instead of obeying God to the note. Lord, I know you talk to me about giving up this bad influence in my life, giving up this person or this sin. What I'm planning to do is sin less, Lord. So that's not obedience. Lord, I know you've burdened my heart to share my testimony with my neighbor or coworker, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give her this book. Christian book about salvation. It's a wonderful book, Lord. Very effective. It doesn't matter how wonderful, how great, how big the substitute for obedience is. If it's not obedience, it's worthless in the sight of God. Remember Saul? He was told by God to wait for Samuel. 
to offer the sacrifice. He got tired of waiting. He offered the sacrifice himself and, 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 and was punished and God was displeased. And you might think, well, what's the big deal? I mean, in the end, the sacrifice was offered. That's a good thing, right? First Samuel fifteen twenty two. But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Lord, I may not obey here, but look, I go to church every Sunday. I tithe, Lord. Surely that's got to count for something. God wants you to obey what he's asking you to do. That small step of disobedience led Saul on a downward spiral, a downward spiritual spiral that he would never correct and a tragic end and a failed legacy. What's the greatest thing you can do in your life for God? What's the thing that pleases God above anything else in your life? Obedience. God is clear in his word and in his counsel. When God talks about salvation, he's clear. When God talks about separation, he's clear. When he talks about obedience, he's clear. Whenever you hear people claim that God's principles have multiple meanings, are up for interpretation, they're ambiguous. You know what? Rest assured, those people have no intention of obeying God's word. They're not the least bit serious about their faith. They want to fit in their definition, their lifestyle, their will into God's word. Can you imagine if highway speed limit signs simply read, don't speed. It's up to each one of you to interpret what that is, to figure out exactly how to obey that, how you would define speeding and how it differs from highway to street and different roads. There'd be chaos. There's got to be a number. The law defines the exact speed for every single paved road at which to stay at or below. The principle's the same in our spiritual lives. God is clear. God is detailed. And God desires our exact and immediate obedience. Amen. You know, there's always an uncompromising relationship between God's grace and blessings and our faith and obedience. Had Joshua and the nation of Israel not obeyed God, not followed his instructions, would they have been successful? No. Would they have captured the city via their own means? No. God does not honor our disobedience. God does not reward our faithlessness. He has blessings and miracles waiting for us, but they require our obedience. I would encourage you all to read Deuteronomy chapter 28 in its entirety. But here's how it starts. Moses writing Deuteronomy 28, 1 to 2. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. And Moses goes on to detail throughout the chapter, and it's beautiful. All the blessings God is ready to give to you and place upon your life. 
And they're available to you if, he says, you obey. You can't have one without the other. You can't disobey and be blessed. And likewise, you'll never obey and not be blessed. With God's blessing. The blessing of his choosing in your life. You know, it's not a foregone conclusion that God will bless your life despite your lifestyle, despite your faithlessness, despite your disobedience. What happened to that fearless, fearful, faithless nation 40 years before them? Remember that generation? They wanted to stone Joshua and Caleb for telling them God can help us. Same spot, same test, same blessing was waiting for them. Did they obey? No. Did God bless them? No. They were cursed to wander the desert for 40 years and die there. God has blessings waiting for us, but they require our obedience. You never hear that in the gospel of prosperity. We want to talk all about the prosperous things God wants to bless us with, and He does. But they require our obedience. That's the contingency. That's the contingent part. Let's take our cue from this lesson, from what they did, and choose obedience. And we choose to obey not only because there are blessings in obedience, which there are, but also because it blesses and honors God when we obey. And isn't He worthy of that? They put their faith into practice and they obeyed God to a T. So first they replaced their doubt with faith. Second, that faith became action and became obedience, and they obeyed God exactly to the note. And third, finally, they persevered in obedience. They started out so enthusiastically. But, you know, each lap around Jericho was half a mile. And here's the nation of Israel taking laps around the city again and again, dressed in full battle gear, carrying the Ark of the Covenant, the sun beating down on them, Felt much like yesterday's golf tournament. (laughs) And I can imagine, I can imagine by that seventh day after about three miles or so, lap after lap, fatigue starts to set in. Not, not, Not just physical fatigue, mental fatigue. I can imagine after lap five or six, they'd start to think, well, nothing, nothing's happening here. I'm not sure this is working. I've been staring at that part in the wall and there's not a crack there. Nothing's moving. And did they quit? Did they give up? Did they go to plan B? Did they need to stop so Joshua could gather them all and give a Braveheart style pep talk? No, they kept going because they believed God and they trusted in his timing. It happens though, doesn't it? John Piper said, the worst enemy of enthusiasm is time. We start out so strong, so enthusiastic, so charged in our walk with Christ, in obeying him to a T. But as time passes without an answer, we we grow weary, we grow weak. As time passes without a spouse, we grow discouraged. As time passes in the same job, we grow disgruntled. As time passes without that healing of the same ailments, we grow tired. Dear friend, persevere. Endure. Continue. Keep going. 
Scripture is filled with pep talks urging us to persevere in our obedience, persevere in living right and doing right, because the answer will come. Here's a couple of them. Second Thessalonians 3.13 says, And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is right. Galatians 6.9 Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Amen. The victory comes to those who persevere. They're there, they're found in the right place, doing the right thing when God says it's time. Game five of the 1997 NBA Finals. After a long and successful regular season, the Chicago Bulls were playing in Utah against the home team Jazz. The night before the game, Michael Jordan, star guard of the Chicago Bulls, and his trainer and his friends were in his hotel room late at night. Michael got hungry. Room service stopped delivering at around 9 o'clock, and, and the only thing they could find that delivered that late was pizza. So they ordered the pizza, and when the pizza place realized it was for Michael Jordan, five guys showed up to deliver the pizza. <laughs> they were delivering the pizza to the man who could single-handedly keep their team from winning a championship. His trainer took the pizza and said, Michael, I got a bad feeling about this. No one ate from the pizza except Jordan. He was hungry. Two o'clock in the morning, his trainer got a call to come back to Jordan's room. There was the star athlete curled up in the fetal position. Team's physician was brought in and said it was one of the worst cases of food poisoning he'd ever seen. The Bulls trainers told Jordan that there's no way he could play the next day. The Jazz had just won games three and four to tie the series at two wins apiece. And a third consecutive win would give them the momentum. The Bulls needed their leader for this critical swing game. And despite his ailments, Jordan got out of bed at 5.50 p.m. on Wednesday, just in time for a seven o'clock tip off at the Delta Center. Officially, Jordan said he had the flu because he refused to point fingers at anyone for, as an excuse for his play. He was visibly weak. He was shaking when he stepped out onto the court for that game five, but he refused to quit. He endured, and he played brilliantly. He had to physically lean on anything he could find at every timeout. He had to lean on his teammates but he still led his team with 38 points and a victory that would propel the Bulls to win the championship. The game would forever be remembered as the flu game. Now, years later, we know the real story. Asked about it afterwards, Jordan said, he said this, I'd come too far to quit. That's the spirit we should have. I've come too far to quit. I've obeyed too long to disobey now. I've trusted too long to lose heart now. Your miracle is just up the road. You're at the cusp of your blessing. Don't quit. Don't lose heart. Don't lose faith. Don't lose hope. Our choir used to sing a song years ago, don't give up on the brink of a miracle. That's where you may be right now, on the very brink, on the verge of a miracle. 
Don't quit now. Joshua and the nation of Israel replaced their doubt with faith. They obeyed God's instructions exactly and they persevered in that obedience. And let's read about the results. Joshua 6, verse 20. And when the trumpet sounded, the people shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the people gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. Remember that wall? 46 feet high, 14 feet wide. Collapsed. So every man charged straight in and they took the city. Verse 27 So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the land. While the walls came tumbling down. We used to sing that when we were little. And I have to share this amazing fact with you. Remember Rahab? You remember Rahab who helped the spies and was promised safety? According to Joshua 2.15, Rahab's house was incorporated into the fortification system on the north side of the wall. If the walls fell, how was her house spared? Remember, the spies had told Rahab, instructed her to stay in her house, bring her family into her house. And, and when they came into the city to take the city, they would find her in her house with her family and she would be spared. And that happened. Rahab and her family were saved as promised. We, we read in Joshua 2. At the end, the north end of that Jericho wall, Archaeologists made an astounding discovery. The German excavation of 1907 found that on the north, a short stretch of the lower city wall did not fall as everywhere else. A small portion of that mud brick wall was still standing and they couldn't explain why. And what's more, there was a house built against the wall that was preserved. God always keeps his promises, doesn't he? I will honor those who honor me. The walls came tumbling down. What a story. Israel would go on to capture the entire promised land by first capturing that key city of Jericho. They'd go on to take the city of Ai, followed by the southern part of Canaan and, and then the northern part. And the promised land was finally theirs. What a contrast from 40 years earlier when fear won the day. And the Israelites lost a blessing and ultimately their lives. This time, faith wins. Obedience wins. What brought those walls crumbling down? The trumpets? The shouts? No, faith did that. Obedience did that. What's going to bring God's miracle to fruition in your life? Faith, obedience, and perseverance. That was the recipe for victory back then. And it still holds true today. Trust God. Have faith. Put that faith into active obedience and keep going. Persevere. Are you ready for a miracle today? Amen. We're quick to respond with a resounding yes. We want the blessings. We want the miracles, Lord. We want the victories. But we don't want the contingent part. We could do without the blind trust and the faith part and the, the obedience part, certainly without the perseverance part. Friend, without them, there is no blessing. There is no miracle. Had Joshua not obeyed, you know, those walls would still be standing today or until God raised someone else up who would obey. If you want God's miracles in your life, if you want his blessings, if you want to see him move in mighty ways throughout your life and in your life, 
Be prepared. Make the necessary preparations for him to bless you. Prepare yourself for the miracle. Prepare your heart. Prepare your life. Live right. Shed the doubts. Choose faith. Trust him and his plan. Forget your own. Forget your own preconceived notions of what your life should be and when things should happen in your life. Trust his plan for your life. And then take that faith, put it into action. Obey him. Take him at his word and obey him implicitly, immediately, and exactly. Don't get sloppy or slothful in your obedience. Obey his instructions in your life to a T and then keep obeying. Persevere. Endure. And in his time, if you are faithful, watch your Jericho walls come crumbling down. Watch him do things you never dreamed were possible. Watch him create in you the person you never thought you could be. Watch him heal in you things you never thought could be repaired. Watch him restore the relationships you thought were forever destroyed. Watch him take the impossibilities in your life and render them accomplished. Watch him take those walls in front of you and turn them into rubble. It can happen. It can happen at any moment. God is ready to show up in your life like we heard in that song. He's ready to show up in your life, in your circumstance, in your trial and turn everything around. But He will only do it if you're found in the right place with Him. Be prepared. Get prepared. And get ready for a miracle today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to be found in the right place for you to work in us, through us, and for us, Lord. We want to have Jericho faith. We cast aside our doubts. We trust you, Lord, and we trust your plan for our lives. And we want our faith to be more than words. Father, help us to put our faith into action and obey you immediately, exactly, Help us, Father, to endure in our obedience, to persevere and to wait patiently for your perfect timing. Thank you that you never fail us. You never fail to come through for us, Lord. You have more than proven yourself time and time again. Thank you for your faithfulness. Prepare us now to be ready for you to work once again. With all our love and gratitude, we pray. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.